Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinus. Makalua. The main team. Mega Bears fan. Hello and welcome to episode 382 of the Polycast. I'm Canis Albinus, who totally didn't have the audio bot muted. And I am joined by our usual bevy of co-hosts, Makalua. Who is the one who has to poke the audio cue bot? The me and team. Sometimes the solution is just a bigger rock. And Mega Bears fan. Mornings fan. are mornings are difficult. Saturday mornings are even more difficult. Morning? Not morning for me, but I'm on the West Coast. It's still nine AM. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in Central Time Zone. It's only eleven AM. If this were uh if this were the fall, football games wouldn't even have started yet. as opposed to a different kind of update, because it's not a different month. So, uh, what do we have in the update? Well, there are uh, some new units, new map, uh, some balance changes, etc. What are your guys' favorite? I like the trebuchet, even though I'm yes. serious doubts that it's going to be uh, free range or anything, because none of the CG units and tall artillery are, but it is cool to see a trebuchet in the game. Yeah, I had similar reservations. I I saw somebody on Twitter uh, tweet their excitement about the addition of a trebuchet, and I responded by with uh, something along the lines of, "Yeah, well, I hope it actually like works and doesn't just take one bombardment from the city and have to retreat or die." (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But we've uh, beaten that horse to death for a while. (laughs) Yeah, that that horse has been thoroughly beaten after its death uh, on this show. And uh, poster area lyric. Grabbed a few screenshots from the update so you can see some of the strength on the new units. And unfortunately, we do not have a screenshot of the trebuchet. The trebuchet <laughs> is thirty-five forty-five. Oh, okay. Compared to what are the uh, catapult and bombard? I don't know. I'd have to look that up. The poster did, but it, it's um thirty-nine here, uh, thirty-five base strength. Uh, For reference, the catapult has a bombard strength of thirty-five. Okay, and this is bombard strength forty five. So this is it'll it'll hit cities harder for sure. Now is that good enough to break cities quickly? I don't think so. Not with two range, but maybe if they change siege so that siege is good against cities, then we'll see. The trebuchet is actually already on the uh, wiki at fandom dot com. Cool. And the bombard has a listed strength on that same wiki of fifty five. So the uh, trebuchet comes right in between. That's not bad. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that would make sense, <clears throat> considering its placement. You know, we've been asking for something like that for a while, because there's a point where catapults aren't good enough, but it's still a long way to bombards. Yeah, there's a medieval wall that defends against medieval mm-hmm. siege units that don't exist in the game. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Plus, 
trebuchets were used much more historically in uh well in general <laughs> than, than what we're seeing well, in catapults e- even catapults uh, yeah as they're depicted in in civilization were uh, my understanding is exceedingly rare because in the classical era you, they weren't using catapults as much as they were using things like uh scorpions and onagers that like you know are just basically ginormous crossbows yeah, yeah. ballistas and ballista yeah they also used ladders throughout most of history Bat rams. Yeah, that too. Then we have two melee units, the man-at-arms and the line infantry, which neatly slot into the 45 base strength slot between the 35 sword and the 55 musket. And the line infantry is 65, and I assume the regular infantry, which already exists, is 75. No, you think they're buffing it? Was it? No, I think there's a new unit called the line infantry that upgrades the existing infantry. I thought the existing infantry was 70 base, but I might be misremembering that. Maybe it is. Did we know what tech it comes with? Because that might be the other thing. Yeah, I'm surprised they're cramming two units into that uh, upgrade path. Also, with the uh, with the way the unit is drawn, it probably doesn't take oil, right? <laughs> infantry, has a listed, infantry has a listed strength, again, on the wiki of 70. So I'm guessing they must be rebalancing that. Yeah. Probably. Unless they want to make um, infantry like it was in Civ Four, where it's only 70 strength, but it gets a bonus against other infantry. Because uh, that was a thing. So they could do that again, too. But if line infantry doesn't take oil, and it looks like it shouldn't, then that's going to be a big plus uh, for using it for quite some time. Let's see. The, the wiki has men-at-arms listed with a melee strength of 45 and upgrades yeah. to musketmen. And then the yep. musketman has a strength of 55, so that's 10 more. Line infantry is 65 for the yeah, damage. Yeah, 65. Okay, so it looks like you're getting diminishing returns from the uh, from uh, going further in the tech tree. No, it's, it's, you're getting 10 per until you hit infantry. That's assuming they don't buff infantry, which they might. Oh yeah, if infantry does go up to 75, then yeah, it would be 10 each. But if infantry stays at 70, then it's... Uh, Diminishing returns, yeah. or like I said, they might be giving uh, they might be giving infantry a bonus against certain other unit classes rather than raw strength. It might also be um, that infantry it has something to do with the oil requirement that line infantry doesn't. Yeah, yeah, line infantry just looks like those uh, pre-modern rifles. Yeah, it's basically the, uh, riflemen from previous games. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. So I assume it will require Niter, which would be nice to have more than one unit in the game that requires that particular resource. <laughs> oh, actually, I guess uh, Bombard's <laughs> needed it too, right? Yeah. Thinking on the Bombard. No, just just one unit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what, bombards. what are Bombards? I've never heard of these. I uh, mean, I've never been a fan of Niter to begin with because Saltpeter is everywhere, but... Just get those horses using for cavalry to go pee on something. Yeah. So we got some Civ balance updates that we know of so far. Spain gets fleets and armadas at mercantilism, as before. But all their trade routes give three gold, two faith, and one uh, production. And uh, that's tripled on other continents. Wait, what? We received triple the bonus, so I guess that means the bonus they get for different resources? 
not sure. I know. I assume it just means that the if the trade route is intercontinental, then you get uh, nine gold, six faith, and three production instead of three, two, one. Okay, and foreign city continents get a twenty five percent bonus production to districts and a free builder when founded. Philip also gets five strength against other religions up four. And the Conquistador now gets its bonus of plus 10 strength with a religious unit within one hex, rather than just the same tile. Wow. These are pretty substantial buffs for Spain. Maybe Grimbeck won't hate them so much. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody rolls them. Chimer gets bonus to its aqueduct usage. They get plus one amenity and plus one faith per population when adjacent to an when an aqueduct is built. Farms adjacent to holy sites provide plus one faith. Suva Yarman the the seventh gets holy sites, get plus two adjacency to rivers, food equal to adjacency, and plus two housing if on a river. It used to be just plus two food and plus one housing next to a river. Mm. And then it's Dor- the Domre is a replace replaces the trebuchet now. And it gets its strength boosted. We don't know to what yet. The Prasat gets six faith instead of four, plus 0.5 culture per pop. Tourism buff after flight equal to the stadium. What's interesting about the Domre is that the, the description that's in the forum here doesn't say anything about its bombard strength. So I'm wondering if it replaces the trebuchet, but is not actually a siege unit. Because I don't think it was a siege unit before. It was very effective at sieging cities, uh, especially since the catapult was crap. But if the trebuchet is substantially better than the catapult and the domre is not actually a siege unit, will it be as effective as the trebuchet at sieging cities? Or is it going to fill more of like an anti-unit role now? I don't think it's a Korean Huacha situation. But I don't know. We don't have any... Defined uh, writing for that. China gets the additional bonus of a random Eureka and Inspiration for completing a wonder. The Eureka or Inspiration is from the Wonders era, not your own. So Mapuche. You, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, so if, that's going to be weird if you try to come back later and build something, but you've already gotten through all the text, then you just get no bonus. Yeah. Well, this is in addition to their existing bonuses. Well, I uh, no extra bonus, let's put it that way. Well, I think yeah. the existing bonuses only applied to ancient and classical wonders anyway, so it doesn't last very long. The existing bonus was not related to wonders at all. The existing bonus was you get 50% from Eureka's instead of 40. Oh, I was thinking of the leader benefit then, I think. The leader benefit was... Yeah, it was that you can spend builders on uh, ancient classical wonders to increase their uh, production. I thought it was more than just ancient and classical. Uh, Let's see. According to the wiki, uh, builder charges can complete 15% of the production cost of ancient and classical wonders. That's new to me. Yeah, that was always one of of my biggest issues with uh, China, like especially playing on like a harder difficulty, you know, like above King, where it's really hard to get a lot of those uh, ancient classical wonders because the AI start with all the bonuses. Like It's just incredibly difficult to use uh, his uh, his power. And I don't know why they cut it off at classical. Like I feel like it should at least go through the medieval era. 
I guess because none of the wonders after the medieval era are Chinese. Is that true? Is the Forbidden Palace in Civ Six? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Okay. I think that the Forbidden Palace might be on the uh, civic tree instead of the tech tree, and I. But I think it is still a little, either late medieval or early Renaissance era. I would think it would be medieval. But yeah, very very difficult to use uh, uh, Quinshi Huang's. Uh, ability at higher difficulties so I, I really am surprised that they didn't just extend that to work like the builder charge thing to work through the medieval and or renaissance era i can understand how that might be ridiculous though because you get free workers from a lot of things in the later game so you're like oh free wonder yeah i mean you're still i think limited to you know using one charge per turn and it's only 15 percent, so it's not like a huge amount yeah, but 15 times 5 is, what, 75? You can build a worker a lot faster than you can build a wonder. Yeah, I guess that's true. And that does basically give you a wonder in, like, five or six turns. Yeah. Depending on... But also to concentrate production in a way that you normally could not. For the Matpuchi, cities with a governor get plus 5 production, plus 5... Per, or plus 5% production, plus 5% culture, plus 10% experience, or combat experience to units trained. Tripled in non-Mapuche cities. All cities within nine tiles of a governor gain plus four loyalty. Larturo's ability switches to plus ten strength versus free cities, golden age, and heroic age civs. Moved from the civ to the leader directly. And defeated enemy loyalty drop double to 40 against city, against golden and heroic ages. And no loyalty drop from pillaging. And the Chenimal gets plus one production. Canada gets buffed too. Winfrey Laurier's ability goes from uh, goes from plus one food plus one production plus one food to camps only on snow and tundra. Now gets plus two to mines and lumber mills and plus two to camps and farms. So Snow and Tundra is actually relatively decent for Canada now. Like, actually good. They basically seem to become grasslands. Pretty much. And the Mountie now has two build charges, Gets is cheaper to build, and is higher strength. Eh, I always use the Mountie as a cheap uh, naturalist anyway. <laughs> yeah. Georgia gets shafted yet again. Combat victories provide plus uh, plus 50% Unit strength in combat destroyed as faith instead of double faith from protectorate wars. And the Kev Sur now replaces the men at arms. I wonder if they'll make some of these upgradable into or if they'll have the same problems as they've had for so long. I've seen some scuttlebutt that the Berserker and Samurai may also replace the men at arms as opposed to being hard builds as they are now. That would be nice. Um, that would make them more useful as unique units. And I think that's all we really know about the patch as yet. It comes out on the 22nd of April, 2021, which is five days from now. Uh, from now, as of this recording. that is. As of this recording, yes. And then that's uh, supposed to be it, right? For the whole New Frontiers thing? That's what they've said. For this, this is season, yeah. Yeah, so this is the last game update that we actually know for sure is going to happen. Everything after that is going to be up in the air until they uh, grace us with a 
formal announcement. We'll see what comes of it. I have to imagine there would be at least one uh, additional like balance patch coming after this at some point. Yeah, because you can't really change that many things and have it not screw up something. You're right, especially a month after like releasing new content, you know? Yeah. So I, I can't imagine that this will be it for Civilization VI. And I'm still, you know, like wondering if there might be a second New Frontier season. <clears throat> that would not surprise me. I think I would be okay with that, but I don't think it's likely. Gotta go with the Paradox models, right? Just keep adding expansions until nobody can afford the game because it's $300 or something. Yeah, give the game 10 years of life or whatever. Except, unlike uh, Paradox, Firaxis does discount its expansion packs lower than 50%. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Paradox says that eventually. It's just when they're, like, years old. (laughs) Many years old. Yeah. Yeah, some of the ones like more than five years ago actually do get discounted more than fifty percent. Not that I'm really defending that, but <laughs> technically yeah. speaking, yeah, I uh, I recently started playing the uh, Crusader Kings board game, uh, which comes with a little uh, flyer inside of it for an ad for ninety percent off Crusader Kings two. Not yeah. a dis- no discount on Crusader Kings three, but ninety percent off of Crusader Kings two, but no discount on any of the DLC. So you're still on the hook for the other two hundred dollars uh, that you have to pay for DLC to get the game up to uh, snuff with whatever one else is playing. The good news well, is CK two is free to play now. Ninety percent discount. Oh, good. Ninety percent <laughs> off of free. Let's see. Carry the one. Divide by pi. Uh, hmm. Just divide by zero, you'll be fine. You just made it undefined. We can't do that. Well, have you tried playing with some of those succession laws? <laughs> uh, I'm joking, I, uh, of course. I put more time in than I should into any of these games, and I, I know most of the succession laws CK2 pretty well. But it did take more effort than usual to get those down. The uh, Crusader Kings board game, by the way, uh, I think is uh, quite good. My friends and I have very much enjoyed it. However, it uh, airs much more on the like procedural storytelling aspect of its gameplay and not so much on the grand strategy element. So if you're going in looking for a very robust, like hardcore strategy game, you will likely be disappointed. But if you... Uh, are interested in a procedural story generator, it is uh, very fun in that regard. Okay. So, 2K, in their infinite wisdom, decided to ruin gaming by creating their own launcher that basically made Civ largely impossible to play for almost a week. And uh, as part of our job as public servants, we will be providing links to how to bypass said launcher. So you don't have to play with five instances of a program that probably contains Red Shell, again, running in the background. So yeah, this is a a public service announcement to everybody working in the gaming industry. Nobody wants your stupid launcher. Nobody. Not The launchers add steps rather than removing them. Nobody wants them. Not a single person wants them. I know people who don't even want Steam. (laughs) <laughs> Let alone yeah. Uh, yeah. another third-party launcher that you can't get around. I have friends who will only buy from good old games, and I have this one friend in particular who I really think would enjoy Outer Wilds, but he can't play it because it's only on Steam and Epic and not on uh, good old games yet. Oh, by the way, the uh, bypass doesn't Epic. work on Epic because Epic is even worse than Steam. But we all knew that. 
we didn't need to be told that, but I'm saying it just because completion's <laughs> sake. Just, just another data point on why Epic is worse than Steam. I mean, and worse than, than most things. Other than all other all other 500 things we can list. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm trying to wonder, like, what exactly is the publisher's like justification from like a consumer benefit standpoint for having a launcher? Like, is is there any? Does this provide any value to the? Or any perceived value to the customer? No claim is, but yeah, but no. Like the only benefit that I see for the publisher, even, is that it's an opportunity to advertise like expansions or DLC or other games. But uh, like they already do that in like the main menu of Civ Six anyway. So Steam yeah. already does it for you too. Yeah, I mean, you're you're not necessarily opening Steam and going to the the Civ web page whenever you boot up Civ, so it's just dependent on whether or not one of those pop up ads uh, comes up, and they're not necessarily always for the same game that you're playing. Uh, but again, even that doesn't matter because it's in the main menu for Civ Six. Now that might not be the case for all of Two K's games, and I'm assuming this is a thing that Two K is just rolling out on all of their games, regardless of whether the games themselves already like provide this functionality. Uh, but like yeah, it is a. It, if it were preventing me from playing the game, I'd be pretty pissed. Luckily, I haven't had any problems with it so far. So I'm, I'm guessing this must depend on your computer setup or, or something. Or maybe you just didn't play it between the time it was broken and the time it was fixed, or quote unquote fixed. Because I've seen yeah. that some people still have problems. And in 2K's defense, 2K is not the only like publisher that is doing these things. Uh, as yeah, we're, we're seeing this crap a lot lately, and there's it's so frustrating because there's no need for it. Yeah, Paradox has been doing it for a while. Like they've been doing it. You know, I place. I know there are other people in this uh, po- uh, uh, podcast play. You know, their Crusader Kings and Europe Universalis and stuff like that. I play City Skylines. Uh, I never had an issue with it, but yeah, it is like just an extra step that's unnecessary. And you, it runs like five processes in the background while it's going. So who knows what the heck they're running in there? Well, and the, one of the other things, too, is like I've had times where uh, actually the, the, my first experience with the launcher for Civ Six was that it didn't actually like launch in a window. It launched minimized for some reason. And the game wasn't running, and I just had no clue. So I kept clicking on the Civ Six executable again on my desktop, like, wondering why the hell it's not running, why the hell Steam isn't coming up prompting me for a password, because I didn't know that there was this new intermediate step. Yeah. We had one instance on our Turncast game where they installed a fix to try and fix the problem, and then ran the so- ran the, the launcher... The launcher closed, or did not close, but it sat there, frozen, for a minute and a half before the game started. And yeah, to be yeah. clear, uh, for, for other people who are frustrated by the launcher, uh, this is almost certainly the doing of 2K, not necessarily of Firaxis. So please do not direct your anger at <laughs> Firaxis or specific developers. Uh, if anything, be mad at the, you know, the parent company. Well, the parent company's developers of this bullcrap launcher. So yeah, we've had specific 2K devs. It, it or is frustrating. 2K as a company. Yeah, it is frustrating that we have to, you know, make disclaimers like that because there are always jerks on the internet who like issue death threats and stuff like that to like totally the not right places. Not that there's any right place to ever issue a death threat. Uh, but like, yeah, don't uh, don't be going on like 
you know, and harassing the developers over this sort of thing, because it is almost certainly not their fault and most definitely not their decision. Yeah, there are very specific reasons when issuing a death threat is considered okay, one of which is, you know, you murdering somebody else, but, you know, still not a good idea. Yeah, and even then, we have, like, courts and laws for that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. We at Polycast do not condone... Like, somebody is holding your family member hostage in front of you or something. I will forgive you then. Yeah. Although Very I might not recommend that as a strategy, but I won't, I won't hold you <laughs> ethically uh, in in any problems for threatening. Then, yeah, we at Polycast do not generally condone vigilante justice. <laughs> the opinions of person X does not necessarily reflect whatever. No, but the gestures I was making Saturday were reflecting my opinion of that launcher. <sighs> Yeah, if you want mods, you could just do it like RimWorld. Well, <clears throat> speaking of lopsided turrets, I guess, kind of, uh... Bojibus over on Fanatic Center was asking, do you, ever, do you ever accept the AI proposed trades? And they said, honestly, at this point, they just close out the windows as fast as they can. It's never, they never offer anything interesting or useful. Every great once in a while, it's decent enough, and you know you're going to get some friendliness points with them, so you go ahead and take it. But yeah, most of the time, no. Especially I'll sell like, off. Go ahead. Hmm? Go ahead. The infamous, uh, give me 13 horses. And I'll give you this or your diplomatic points and this and for two gold per turn. What? I'll sell my diplo favor if I think I need money, but other than that, not really. Well, especially if you're uh, if you captured a capital or two and you're getting negative diplomatic favor per turn, then at that point you might as well just sell it for gold. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be gone before you can use it anyway. Sometimes if they if they want to take my great works and I don't want to win a culture victory, I'll let them have those. But it's a very uh, rare time when I accept the AI trade. I find yeah, I mean, that I'm more willing to accept them like later in the game as the game goes on because it's you know I usually have so much gold and resources and stuff anyway, and uh, like it's unlikely to you know change the outcome of the game at that point so if one of my like friendlier allied civs pops up and they want something you know in like the modern or information era i'll usually just click yes just to get them to go away and leave me alone yeah because and also in a sense you're you're buying goodwill points basically so that they don't decide to turn around and uh backstab you while you're busy elsewhere don't backstab me my troops are on the other side of the world well, no, that's the perfect time to backstab, obviously. But it's the AI. I don't want it to backstab me, because that's just a hassle. Yeah. Which I declare war on somebody, and then, oh, now you want to... De- what, I just, couldn't have done that, like, five turns ago before I moved everything across an ocean? Thanks, game. Yeah, I really missed that give-me-ten-turns-to-prepare option that was in Civ Five. Yeah. Yeah, that was helpful. You know, so, yeah, okay, we'll declare the joint war. You just gotta give me a little bit to be ready. Yeah, let me not let my units get ambushed by this declaration of war that's happening not on my turn. Thank you. Does anybody know if the AI would would 
still ask you to go to war with them if they decided they didn't want to go to war during that 10-turn time? I do not specifically recall. I don't either. (laughs) It's been a while. I I want to say once they asked you that, they didn't, but I'm not 100% sure. It's like, because they've gone through the... uh, their checklist of why do I want to declare on this person and all of that. So they wouldn't ask you until they're absolutely sure. And it would be very odd for them to change their mind in just 10 turns. Yeah. I don't know if that evaluation is happening every turn or how often it happens anyway. So it might even be that they don't even like check again until that comes up. But if they do, it would at least be nice if the uh, AI Civ would like come to you and be like, yeah, we changed our minds. Don't worry about that anymore. Preferably, as soon as they decide they're not going to do it anymore so that I can, you know, stop moving my units across the board. People have, people have uh, lucked out sometimes. Somebody offered Poland one of their ex- a couple of their excess lectures and Jadavi was like, take all my relics. <laughs> Which, wow, I want to get that one. That's actually a good trade. Yeah, I've seen uh, recently the AI has been like selling off its uh, great works just left and right. Like anytime I have an available slot, somebody comes to me and is like, hey, you want our great work of writing? They also, a lot of times, just want to trade a great work for another great work, uh, which I've always found, like, confusing. I don't know why they do that, especially in the case of writing, where none of the structures that you can put writing in have theming bonuses, so there's, like, no point in changing a great work of writing. So I don't know why they do that. I kind of miss the Civ Five theming system because it was more dynamic. Yeah, there were oh, there's a wider variety of ways that you could theme buildings, and uh, Civ Five also had the benefit of like the same civilization isn't the one getting all of the great people of a particular type because Civ Five didn't have the district system. Well, you should be getting all the great people of the same type, even with the district system. Right, but if, if for the uh, great uh artist people i found that that like there tends to be one sieve that especially uh in the ais that like gets almost all of them and then none of the other sieves have great works at all maybe it's because they sold them all off i don't know or maybe because somebody wanted to buy them all possible yeah i guess that's possible and in that case like i mean the the great works still provide a decent chunk of culture which helps you through the civic tree and expands the borders of your cities so it's not like they don't do anything if you're not going for a culture victory so i do feel like the ais are a little bit too willing to get rid of them yeah because i'll take them like there's no reason not to just have one sitting you know in your amphitheater like i said it's it's just extra culture that you're getting per turn which you know speeds up your ability to get new governments and unlock valuable uh policies and civics and elsewhere in the throw they're talking about they usually reject open borders offers but what i've seen people like different people playing on deity actually they'll go especially early on they'll actually go ahead and accept that because it can delay the deity ai from attacking you like, it'll give you that extra 10 or 20 turns to get out some more units so you have a better defense when they do inevitably come after you. One of the other uh, advantages to having the open borders is that if you notice the AI starts to walk all of its units through your territory, you kind of then know that they're not coming for you. They're just trying to get to somebody on the other side of you. Because if they're coming for you, they just camp outside your borders. Because I think even the AI knows that if they move into your borders and then declare war, all their units just get kicked out anyway. And usually with the AI, it's like, oh, there's a city-state over there that's useful to me, but the AI wants it. It's like, uh 
Yeah, that's I, I found a lot of times that's what it is, is there is like a city state and they just want to kill city states, even though they can't possibly hold that city state because it'll just loyalty flip in like five turns anyway. And in that case, I guess, you know, probably a free city for you, depending on how the loyalty pressure is working. Generally. Yeah. So there's or reasons to do it. it. It just comes down to what you think the AI is going to do with that open borders. Yeah, later on in the game, you're less likely to do it. But early on, it's like, well, they're just going to walk through, you know? And sometimes you want the open borders from your side so you can walk through them. And it's like, where are all your cities so I know exactly where to aim things? Yeah, or to bring back my uh, scouts or galleys that are trapped on the other side of their borders. Could you pick that one hex? And then, of course, they ask me to move all my troops from their borders, even though it is one friggin' scout. And we have open borders, so, like, you shouldn't be upset that he's in your borders to begin with. Your borders threaten our troops. Or your troops threaten our borders, yeah. Yeah, I want to send the AI a message like saying... your borders threaten our troops. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. I want to send a message to the AI saying, uh, keep your borders away from my troops. <laughs> keep your borders away I'm from my troops. Because you're, you're still scared of my scout, and I don't understand. It was a defensive-offensive war, I declared. Their borders are a threat. Well, it's funny, though, Canis, because in actual practice, it does work out that way sometimes. Just because of the yeah. way that border growth happens in uh, in Civ games. Or they can settle uh, near you and then complain immediately. Yeah, why are your cities that have always been there so close to my city that was just put there two turns ago? Yeah, the joys of dealing with Civ AI. You settled on land that I considered my own. My capital. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I can kind of relate to the AI with that. Well, you consider all the land your own. Not all of it. Just most of it. Just, yeah. Just enough to win conquest. We don't need to grab every Tundra city. All right. Well, uh, a few days ago, we had an article posted by PC Gamer uh, titled How Civilization Could Reinvigorate the Ancient Series. Uh, I don't know that I'd really call Civilization an ancient game series, but okay. I mean, I guess it comes from the 90s, so... <laughs> In computer ages, that is ancient. It's probably I, yeah. been around longer than the guy who wrote this article has been alive. Yeah, yes, probably. I was going to point that out, too. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Fraxis still hasn't even released the final patch for uh, Civ 6, and we've already got these think pieces starting to pop up, talking about what Civ 7 could be, or what they want it to be. And, uh... This particular uh, article uh, basically is complaining about, uh, well, not necessarily complaining. I I think there's some legitimate points here. So is airing some grievances with regard to, for example, how victory conditions work uh, and how rigid the specific types of victories are. They also talk about uh, wanting more diversity between civilizations, uh, specifically to not have every civilization shoehorned into the same process of imperialism and industrialization that Western European societies all went through? Well, all societies, though. That survived anyway. Yeah. It's not like... Westernization and imperialism are not Western-specific. Yeah, Western, Western, The Western world did industrialize first in some ways, but China had some industrialization before China, before... Europe did. And uh, let's not even talk about how many different empires there were in the Middle East before Rome existed. Right. 
Uh, one example they bring up is uh, talking about the indigenous nations of the Pacific Northwest, and they this article says that they, quote, produced more high-quality protein per square meter by cultivating salmon with far less labor, pollution, and ecological disruption than the best farming techniques of the European settlers that displaced them, uh, unquote. I would like to see a source for that. Uh, it would be nice if they could at least like link to like a Wikipedia article or something, like explaining how that worked, uh, instead of expecting us to do the research on our own. Uh, also, they they got displaced, quote unquote. Uh, that's that's a nice way of describing what happened. Uh, but in the context of Civ, that's you getting conquered because you didn't keep up in tech. So, it, 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 the way the game is modeling the competitive environment. Sorry to say, but that's just what happens if you don't. Well, I think, now, that... and it's not even the first time a highly advanced civilization got conquered, not or had or was ahead in a particularly uh, or particularly ahead in some aspects of technology slash development. Uh, we, we saw this with Egypt. We saw this with Rome. We saw this numerous times where uh, nations that were ahead in at least some metrics still got conquered and displaced or completely wiped out. As a result, or collapsed in on themselves. Yeah, or all three. Yeah, uh, yeah. So these things tend to coincide to some extent. I, I think the, the um, I think the complaint here at like a more fundamental level is just that Civ does not allow you to build that kind of culture like ever at any point during the game. Uh, which I think is a valid complaint. Uh, I in the past have expressed an interest in seeing nomadic civilizations uh, implemented in a you know, different ways that don't require them to be building static cities the way that every other Civ in the game does. And there have been other games that have tried to do that. Uh, Total War Attila comes to mind. And, you know, we're moderately successful. The Total War Attila's mechanics for it, though, are uh, kind of BS. Not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the game is still quite good. completely but... wipe out all of, uh, all of Attila's stuff, and it'll just respond the next turn. No thank you on that one. There needs yeah, like they're not even playing kind of the same game, and that's a problem. I <laughs> like you have the asymmetric stuff that Soren was talking about, but at some point it turns into a slog too. Like you can't make it too asymmetrical in the uh, design space. It has to still make sense, and wiping out all of Attila's armies only to have them instantly reappear does not make sense. Uh, that being said, the idea of having different Civs play differently is something that the series has been going for for a long time. Uh, starting with Civ uh, 3 and then progressing from there, we've seen increasingly marked differences between civilizations with each iteration of the game. The problem with making an entirely different playstyle is now you're going to have to cut down severely on the number of Civs you can put in the game. And that's not a trade-off that's made lightly or that everyone would like, because there's no way you could make all these new mechanics for each and every new Civ that exists in Civ 6. Yeah. And then expect them to interact insanely. We have 50 Civs in the game. They can't all have individual mechanics, otherwise it would break. True, but they could have a you know handful of archetypes and then have their own unique abilities and stuff to give flavor within those archetypes. It, it's doable. It would certainly be a very difficult task, especially when it comes to balancing, uh, as Attila, uh, as Phil's complaints on Attila Total War uh, bear out. I would only be okay with that if you could choose which archetype you wanted. 
at the start. And even then yeah. I would complain because I wouldn't like that I had to do what I wanted at the beginning and then got shoehorned into the rest of it. Well, to some extent, you could um, you could represent this with government choices that exist in Civ Six and just uh, change how the mechanics of those government uh, governance uh, influence the game. So it's not impossible to do. Humankind in its opening stages has that nomadic. You wander around, you're just accumulating stuff, but there's still sort of a cap to it, and you're still forced to settle eventually. Like that's the natural progression. You can't just. You could keep wandering, but I don't think you could wander infinitely. You'd eventually lose, I would guess. Yeah, and uh, it's the same thing with the Mongols. A lot of them, <laughs> a lot of them did conquer land and then just be assimilated into that land slash culture as the conquerors. Oh yeah, it's definitely that, not that the case. That, yeah, it's definitely not the case that these nomadic cultures like did not have cities or permanent settlements at all. Uh, they definitely did. Well, yeah, I'm just thinking about the ones that took over Iran or China. Like, it's like the Yuan Dynasty. It was a lot more China than Mongol towards the end of that. Right, hence the new uh, Kublai Khan leader for China. Yeah. And so then, to what extent do you model that in the game if you're going to make a nomadic-styled civilization? Well, just make it so that the cities are places they return to every. And then you can have the conceit that they're wandering around their land, but the land is still theirs because it has borders, but the cities are religious sites or government centers that aren't inhabited the whole year. Well, there's also, I mean, there's also precedent for similar mechanics, like even within the Civilization series. Like once again, uh, Beyond Earth's expansion had the concept of the mobile aquatic cities, which moved very, very, very slowly but, you know, were in some sense nomadic. So, you know, there could be iterations on that sort of idea where, you know, you have some civilizations that have fixed cities, some civilizations that maybe have cities that can move. Uh, you know, it's, it's a possibility. It, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. The way to do that, you would have to separate borders from the city itself. Because otherwise, your borders would move every time your city moved. Which meant all that somebody had to do was wait till your city was somewhere else and then snag the land you were wandering on, and then you couldn't go back. Yeah. One of the other things that you would probably have to do at a very, very fundamental level is you would have to change the way that, like, resources work. Because if you actually wanted nomadic wandering or moving cities around to be something that's viable, let alone necessary, you would probably need mechanics in place where you could actually consume all of the resources in a particular area and then have to move in order to find, you know, more fertile or more research uh, rich land while you, you know, wait for the land you had previously occupied to, uh, you know, become fertile again. Well, then there's the problem of, okay, we are now a Bronze Age civilization. Where are we getting our bronze copper? Because I don't think there's ever been a nomadic society that has ever been able to mine. And without bronze or without tin and copper, it's pretty much impossible to do a lot of civilization stuff. Well, but that's the, again the the fundamental complaint with the or, uh, with the you know article that we're talking about is that it you know the the game does not at all model these other ways of living and still has this very Eurocentric uh, idea of how civilizations grow and develop, which you know is maybe not representative of how other cultures uh, have done things. But where so, are those cultures now? Well, 
I mean, but the whole point of civilization is that it's all revisionist history. So it's not really a question of where are those no, cultures no, now. No, no, it's no, a- no. The whole point of civilization is it's not history at all. This is all a conceit based on the idea of history. There's no actual history happening in Civ. Well, right. I, I think we're in violent agreement at this point uh, on that yeah. topic. But that's what I'm what my opinion is on this is just. We don't need to worry about trying to change the game fundamentally because the game is already not real. So it's like, why do we want to put realism into this if it doesn't better? Because we don't want AIs to intentionally choose choices that will make them lose. Yeah, one of their complaints here is about being able to set their own goals. And, you know, because it's like they're, they're saying that Civ is rigid in this, in this expectation that you're supposed to keep going forward and go through the tech tree. And either try to, you're conquering it in some sort of different sense, whether it's a culture victory, a religious victory, a science victory, it's still a conquering in a sense. You know, you don't get, I mean, even so it's not technically, you know, I mean, a culture victory isn't really conquering, conquering. Everybody just loves your blue jeans, your rock music. They, but they, they would want to be able to choose their own goals and, I'm sitting here trying to think, but you can go for the different victory types, and that is a different goal. They're uh, comparing it with Crusader Kings, where you're just going off and doing strange things with your family thing. Like you set a goal, I want to put this kind of person on the throne and conquer that, or or conquer this one small area, even though it's really hard to hold together. You could do things. I, I'm sorry, I'm not articulating this very well. It, it's hard to have a game like Civ without concrete rules for victory. Yeah, I don't I, know how you would do it, actually. Yeah, even Crusader Kings and, uh, you know, by extension, Europa Universalis and all that, have an end date that you can't play past. I mean, there's mods to take that out, but you wouldn't want an infinite game of Civ because it would just get... It bogs down now when you get into the late game. You used to only be playing it after a thousand turns. Yikes. Well, there'd just be no meaningful decisions left at some point. Unless you end up in a eternal war situation like that one guy in Civ 2. Yeah, I guess. Although, it was pretty obvious that that didn't need to be happening. <laughs> well, no, but not everybody's as good a player as everybody else. That's true. I'm just saying, even he would probably eventually either win or lose that. Probably. And then after which there would be no more decisions left on that game board, because it would just be all of one Civ or the other Civ. It's definitely not a fun game to play, I'm sure. Playing a game for thousands of turns. Well, a strategy game anyway. You just made me think of uh, Dungeon Crawl, uh, Stone Soup, and <laughs> oh, it would be well, unusual. You can win less than 50,000 turns, for example, but it would be you, you have to be really good. Uh, to do that with any consistency. And most wins are in like the 80,000 to you know, 110,000 ish range, I would say. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the turns don't work in Dungeon Call like they work in Civ, obviously. You can finish a game of Dungeon Call faster than you can typically finish a game of Civ. Dungeon <laughs> <laughs> you took one more step, Civ is like, it's 10 years later. Yeah. There's a lot more inputs per turn in Civ and an input per turn bloat in Civ for that matter. There's a part of this article where it's talking about being upset that there's no refugee crises or endgame oh, resource wars. And my because only response to that is, do we really want to see that 
in our games. We kind of play games to get away from it. I was just about to say that. We're, we're playing this to escape from the real world. Well, strategy crises, like many things that are uh, need to be abstracted some way anyway, it don't really happen on Civ timescales. Like, like any historical refugee crisis just doesn't last 50 years. Either the refugees make it or they don't. So how do you want to put that in the game without being pretty nasty with its implementation and still giving it even a somewhat realistic nod? No, thank you. That being said, it wouldn't hurt to have a, a migration mechanic per se. Or population displacement. Yeah, I mean, that, that's not something that couldn't be done. I don't know that the game needs it, but... The closest thing that Civ Six currently has would be the, the loyalty system, where you conquer a civilization and they have a large population city, so, you know, they're uh, less loyal to you and you have to work to re-earn it. The issue, though, is that they're not still loyal to the old civilization, so even if they culture flip or loyalty flip, they flip to a free city and not, you know, back to the, the Civ that used to control them. Yeah, and there's, uh, you don't see significant population displacement from the conquered land into other land owned, still owned by that previous Civ or other Civs. And there's no contingency for the behavior of the conquerors dictating to what extent that happens. Right, like Civ Four, for instance, had this like interesting but like completely underutilized mechanic where there were actually demographics within the cities. Like I think it was in the bottom mm-hmm. left corner of the city screen was this little meter that told you what population of your city was like your civilization's people versus a different, you know, culture uh, uh, population. But like there were no policies or anything that you could implement that would like affect you know, how the populations from different cultures, like, were treated or how they interacted with each one another. So it it was there, but it just never did anything. It was the, That was for, entirely for happiness and culture flipping mechanics. That, that, it could have been used for more, but that's what it was used for. Oh, did yeah. it contribute to culture flipping? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you had a city that was predominantly somebody else's culture, it would have a chance at revolting. Uh, depending on the size of the garrison and a few other factors. And if it revolted twice and was not conquered previously by the Civ holding it, it could flip uh, outright to other Civs. Oh, I thought that was just based on border growth. And you could you would also get unhappiness if uh, the culture was primarily <laughs> not yours. Yeah, I know that also, I think if you declared war on the civilization and a very large chunk of your population originally belonged to that civilization, they would get upset with you and you'd have happiness penalties. I'm trying to remember exactly how that worked. I, I think there was a happiness modifier for, like, you're at war with our homeland or something like that that would show up on the... Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was so minor compared to the other happiness penalties, <laughs> though. Because you'd get ones for fighting brothers and sisters of faith. You'd get them for uh, war weariness, which was much more punitive than all the others combined when it came to war unhappiness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the unhappiness hit from... Fighting the same culture was chump change compared to occurring war weariness. Never did like how that mechanic worked exactly. You nuked our friend. He was duped full stop. What are you doing? No, they didn't care. <laughs> and so far, yeah. they, uh, they only, you only got a penalty with people if you nuked somebody they liked or you nuked them. If you nuked somebody that they were like cautious or lower with, or like you're their worst enemies or whatever. They did not care. You could launch 300 nukes, and yeah, I would not bat an eye. There's no default penalty for that. 
Well, I think the check in Civ Four for launching too many nukes was uh, like the radioactive fallout or pollution or whatever. Yeah. Well, if you I mean, but that was times, it's not going very far. Yeah, I don't think Civ Four. Did you get global warming in Civ Four? Yeah, but it was just turning random tiles into desert and it hit everybody equally. So, like, even though you're kind of screwing yourself, you're screwing everybody else equally as well. Uh, so that wasn't really a, a strong disincentive in a conquest-based game to using nukes at all. And then uh, Fallout was local. Like, it would only hit in target tile and the surrounding tiles. So, it, yeah, I mean, you can launch as many nukes as you wanted into that tile. Now, if you wanted to use the city afterwards, well, you probably shouldn't be nuking it. But if you want to win the war, nukes definitely get the job done. Or lower population, because lowering other Civs' population in Civ Four was actually a direct path to victory, because there was yep. that, uh, uh, what was it, was it Domination? Or co- I always get them confused. The one where you just needed, like, 60% of the world's population and area, and you would win. That was Domination, but you usually you are usually gated on territory rather than pop for Domination. Right. But where nuking population came into, mo- came into uh, relevance, ironically, was for diplomatic victory conditions. Because like because the AI would not care if you nuked enemies or people didn't care about, you could nuke away the population of anybody who wouldn't vote for you while leaving <laughs> your friendly right. Because the won. number of votes that they had was based on population, right? Correct. So you would nuke down their population, and, and by, you- by as a result of that action, win diplomatically. <laughs> The UN has decided that this nuclear power is the one. It's uh, Teddy Roosevelt's big stick. Yeah. The big stick is a glowy big stick. Big bada boom. I loved winning that way. It was so stupid, but fun. (laughs) Yeah, victory conditions are a problem. They're still a problem. Like, it's an unsolved problem. Well, I was just reading up uh, last night on how uh, humankind is planning on doing it, and apparently it's it's essentially like a victory point system. You accrue fame over the course of the game by performing certain actions that seem like they're roughly analogous to era score kind of things in Civ Six. And uh, if you get enough, if you have the most fame at the end of the game, you win. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll see if it works. Both uh, Humankind and Old World are trying to shake that up, and I think that's healthy. Uh, we'll, we'll find something that's good eventually. Well, and I think that's also something that was mentioned in the uh, uh, PC Gamer article that uh, we were talking about. They they did mention that Civ might not be able to just rest on its laurels because there actually is viable competition in that very specific niche market now that uh, yeah. hasn't been there for you know at least, like, what, 10, 15, 20 years that's also healthy and have needed that competition for sure. So, you know, part of the, the idea of that article, I think, was that Civ needs to, as they say, reinvigorate the game if they want to remain the industry leader in that particular niche. Well, that's a reasonable thing to say. I, I think many of the suggestions in this particular article would uh, see Civ drop from industry leader pretty heavily. <laughs> Yeah, because there's also the thing is they can change Civ some, but they can't change it as drastically, I think, as the writer wants, because then it's not Civ, and there's a certain fan base that expects Civ to at least have some certain baseline features, and that's going to alienate a lot of people. Because there's even people between Civ 5 and Civ 6 that are like, eh, nah, I'll pass. So. Yeah, although that rift wasn't as bad as 4 to 5. 
Well, and a lot of the people that I know who still play Civ Five and don't play Civ Six do it because they feel like Civ Six wasn't as big of a difference from Civ Five. They felt like it was too similar, and you know they were just wary uh, or weary of uh, of just playing the same game over and over again. Man, I don't know. Five is five and six are pretty different. Well, a lot of that came from when Civ Six Vanilla came out, where like a lot of it was directly, a lot of the mechanics in Civ Six Vanilla were pulled directly from, uh, you know, Civ Five Brave New World. Uh, you know, yeah. same, you know, virtually same trade route system, very similar, uh, great work system. You know, all that stuff was just very, very comparable. It was, you know, a lot of people That's saw it as true. basically just Civ Five with districts. Uh, and I keep trying to tell these people that, okay, well, maybe you should then give Rise and Fall and Gathering Storm a chance. And, you know, they just have that, uh, that, that bitter taste, I guess, in their mouth that makes them not want to, you know, even take the time to go back, which is, you know, unfortunate because just like with previous games, the expansions improved Civ 6 a lot. Like, I sure as heck would not want to go back to Civ 5 vanilla after having played either of Civ 5's expansions. And I wouldn't want to do the same with Civ 6 either. It is an unfortunate thing with uh, DLC for extended periods of time. Any new release in the series would have to integrate almost all of that stuff into the new version, or it's just the worst game for a long time. I I, I wonder how long it will take until CK3 is actually a better game than CK2. It might happen eventually, but it's nowhere near it right now. Yeah, and I thought Civ Six did a pretty good job in that regard because, like I said, they ported a lot of the popular mechanics from Brave New World uh, and from Gods and Kings. The religion system is is still basically the same as what was introduced in Gods and Kings. They just ported all that stuff over, and Civ Six has a mecha- uh, vanilla had a mechanic set that was you know very very comparable to what was available in Civ Five with two expansions. Uh, yeah. You know, you could disagree about whether or not it worked as well, and we have done so in the past. But, you know, it was all there. It wasn't like going from, like, The Sims 2 to The Sims 3, where, oh, now you don't have your pets anymore, or apartments, or jobs, and all that stuff is just gone, and you're starting over from basically just Civ 2, but with better graphics again. Or, uh, yeah, it's, uh, Sims 2 Vanilla, but with uh, better graphics again. Don't worry, guys. Civ 7 will have at least as much quality as the Madden custom franchises. <laughs> <laughs> oh my at least oh no but i, I would I hope would play, and, oh, i ahead. would play the sims once if they didn't cost 180 dollars <laughs> they have a similar problem with paradox where they have this many expansions and stuff packs and all this stuff and well it's they're a, all 40 bucks yeah and they're the same exact expansions or exact same concepts one. that you bought from the previous game. It's, oh, you have a pets expansion. You have an expansion where they get to live in apartments. You have an expansion where they get to go to college. You have an expansion where they run their own businesses from home. Uh, maybe you have an expansion where like they can go camping and stuff like that. Like it's all the same things and they're, they're packaged the same. They just change the name that's on the box and resell it to you again at $40. They're cash cow. I, I fully expect that. Played the Sims. I, I would fully expect that when Civ Seven comes out, it will also port a lot of the popular mechanics from you know Civ Six's expansions. I expect some variation of probably loyalty to appear in Civ Seven Vanilla. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the uh, uh, disaster and climate change systems uh, are are ported over. You know, not necessarily verbatim, but something similar. 
uh, surely districts will probably be a staple in the series going forward. I don't like districts, but that's just me. Yeah, the, the PC Gamer article also had complaints about like districts and the way that they look, especially at Endgame, where it's just constant urban sprawl. I personally think that could be addressed by just having the map design so that there's more space between cities, so that you still have <laughs> the large urban centers, but then also have the large... Uh, you know, farming and pastoral areas like out in the countryside, because right now there's just almost no distinction between urban center and countryside in yeah. by the end of the game. Uh, so, you know, that at least is something that I think we are all in agreement on with that particular PC Gamer article. We need more tiles. Actually, the the article was mostly I don't like how they look. Compared to how we feel, where it's like, I wish there was more space. Civ 7 could use districts and not have them be the same as Civ 6, too. Uh, that's another way they can go with it. They can change them mechanically a lot while still keeping the base concept of something that gets adjacency bonus and is vaguely centered on one type of uh, output. But I don't they, like there's that still I a to... lot of changes there. I don't like that I have to build the district individually and then I get stuff from it. Yeah, and like, that doesn't have to be the case. You could just make like, a district zoning rule, for example. Like, literally, all I want is a library. Why do I have to build a campus and then a library? It, yeah, it would be more like you should build the library first, and then you're putting subsequent science buildings there, and then it becomes the district. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, maybe you just build an empty district, right? And it just has, like, housing or whatever <laughs> to house more of your population. And then, yeah, you put buildings in it. And then it becomes specialized over time. No, I, I, I don't want to build district, though. Well, you wouldn't necessarily have I, to. Like, they, they could maybe I have go, a... They like could maybe I, have a... Go ahead. When a city grows, it doesn't build something and then build on top of it. It builds when it needs something new, and then it grows as it builds. Right. Well, what I was getting at would be more like the, the population just settles there. Like, you know, kind of maybe kind of similar to how uh, tiles are annexed by the city... You know, like this, the population would just move to that place because there's resources there or whatever. And there would be like, you know, essentially the equivalent of like a neighborhood there. You didn't build it like the city would build it automatically. And then you would have the choice of putting buildings in it to specialize it was kind of where I was going. Time for SimCity 2000 zoning. (laughs) And that would be an option. As long as I could relocate where they went automatically, it would be okay. Well, yeah, I mean, you could, sounds like a pretty cool idea. And you could have a similar system where you can just pay gold or whatever, or, you know, spend production to put the thing where you want it instead of just letting it happen automatically. But then there's, you know, the opportunity cost of then you're not spending that on, on something else, just like with uh, tile annexation. Or designate where you want it to go before it happens. Yeah, yeah. And that would also be something that would be very nice to have four tiles uh, for access. Yeah. So, yeah, there's different ways that 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 sort of stuff can be. And I just think in general, there does need to be more space between cities uh, just because of the way that the one unit per tile works. Like you shouldn't have. Yeah, the beginning of five. Yeah, Yeah, you you should not have an army that like a single army that occupies the entire land area of the country you're invading. Like that's a little bit ridiculous. I don't think that even happened in World War Two. Carpet scene. Right. Yeah, no. And that can either be done with, you know, more spaces between cities, or you could actually make this, you know, just to have more tiles and the cities take up more tiles 
uh, you know, like a city center could potentially just be more than one tile if the tiles are small and granular enough. But then you run into, you know, technical issues and engine limitations. So, well, I don't know how feasible uh, that is. Hopefully Civ 7 will be on a Oh, yeah. Hopefully. But there's a lot of different ways they could go with that sort of thing. But either way, I, I am pretty confident that districts will be a staple in the game for at least the next few iterations, unless they come up with some, you know, radical different idea that replaces it. We'll have to wait and see. I still think Civ 7 will come out this October or something. Like, release this October? Yeah. Dang. Man, well, I'd be surprised. But... I would be surprised, because we haven't heard anything yet. We usually get at least a half a year-ish ahead of time. Yeah, so. I wouldn't be surprised if there's an announcement uh, this fall, but I, I would be very surprised if an actual game came out. Yeah, that is true, isn't it? Um, never mind. I retract my prediction. <laughs> because I, I was that. I was thinking it was the way that it used to be, but the way that it used to be is long dead, so... Because usually we get an expansion pack in July, and then the next year is when it, the announcement comes but we're getting expansion packs now so we're not expansion packs dlcs well and again i I would like to point out that previously there was the track record of there being that other game in between like major civ releases you know we had uh uh beyond earth and uh like civ 4 colonization was between civ 4 and civ 5 that could be as well who knows maybe they'll remake pirates again (laughs) <laughs> I would actually love that. Or, uh, didn't uh, Sid Meier also have a Railroads game? Yes, I would like to see that remade again, although um, there are some pretty good remakes of Railroad Tycoon out now. Or a full PC slash console version of, uh, was it Sid Meier's Airplanes? What was the, the mobile game that they made a few years ago that was... Um, was it case, called uh, Sid Meier's uh, Airplanes? Sid Meier's, um, shoot. Ace Combat? It's not Ace Combat. Ace Combat is from Japan. Okay. Uh, no, there was a Firaxis-developed game. I think it was only on mobile platforms, and it was it was a Sid Meier... It's Meyer, on Steam as well. Yeah, it was a... Oh, is it? It was a Sid Meier-branded thing about, like, airplane... Ace Patrol. There we go. That was it. I have played that game. It is a very Sid Meier game. I don't think it performed... very good game. I don't think it performed very well, though. Oh, probably not, because it was a mobile game. It was a mobile game that was as well designed as a non-mobile game, which meant that it wasn't designed well as a mobile game. Well, and it probably also cost money, which most people on the mobile platform are averse to spending, even though they'll spend crap tons of money once they've played the game. Well, yeah, this was also several years ago before paid apps was a real thing. Yeah, it was back when there was the expectation that mobile games were free and that you would just have to pay to make them not suck once you started playing them. (laughs) Yeah. So having a game that you had to pay for up front, but which was actually like decent or good up front was uh, like blew people's minds and they just couldn't comprehend how that could possibly work. Right. Hey, you guys tried Raid Shadow Legend? No. No, 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 no. <laughs> All right. Well, does anyone else have anything else to say about that uh, PC gamer? guys were all quiet for so long. I was like, okay, I guess we're done. Anyway, thank you for listening to Polycast episode. What is this, 382? I think so, yes. As, uh, I'm Michael Lua, who's a little too fast with the cute stain. I'm joined by Candace Alphidus. 
I survived. Good. The me and team. Reinvigorating the military units. And Mega Bears fan. Back to making lots and lots and lots of money with Portugal. You gotta get those microtransactions in. Microtransaction Portugal? What would oh, that be? Macro transition Portugal. What? 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 I don't. What? I don't. No, no. Phil. <laughs> you gotta be careful there, Canis. You can joke about adding microtransactions, but somebody at the publisher will take the idea seriously and run with it. That's right, don't no do ma- it. No matter how silly the idea seems to you, someone at a publisher will take it and run with it. If they do, they will lose a customer. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6, Sound Clips, Copyright Take 2, Interact. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net. Woohoo! I, I'm just seeing that we also have some uh, comments on the uh, YouTube. A few from Gamer Trojan. First is, yeah, I agree the game does not offer enough alternatives, money, or faith rules. Civ, period. Uh, also, Civ is now more SimCity than about a civilization. Uh, second mm. post is, at least Stellaris offers many alternative civic or government types, and money is trade if you want it, or energy if not. And then the third and final post is really looking forward to humankind. That looks more Civ than Civ currently does. Who is this guy? Uh, the name that they have on here is Gamer Trojan. Possibly a first-time listener. Yeah. Which means I wish I had seen this so that we could talk about it while the show was still on, but... Yeah. We, we've just gotten so used to nobody being <laughs> to chat anymore, I think. Or at least saying anything during... Yeah, it had been so long since we've had discussion there but that would be nice it's just we don't have it Uh, i i am still recording so i could tack this on to the end oh okay yeah i think we should um so yeah so anyone want to have any thoughts on those particular comments i think he's wrong but that's okay (laughs) (laughs) well if you think about it in the medicines it's a reflection of our real world where money rolls a lot of things well i mean saying stellaris is a better forex game than civ kind of a strike. Did he say that? That's what he was implying. I mean, he there are systems that he likes more in Stellaris than what Civ does, and that's fair. And also, to be fair uh, to Civ, uh, Stellaris did post-release collapse a lot of those options into one option uh, because they couldn't get them balanced properly uh, in the, uh, the FTL rules. Yeah, there's no balancing that. <laughs> I didn't even play the game at the time. I haven't actually played the game at all. I've seen some videos on it, though. But there, but there was no, the, you, <laughs> there's no way they were going to balance that. Yeah, I liked the <laughs> flavor and variety that it offered, and I was very disappointed uh, and frustrated when it was taken out. But I oh, also was some major salt. Yeah, I was form. not playing the game competitively or like at any like hardcore degree like other players were. So I didn't really pick up on like how poorly balanced it was. I picked up on it a little bit that if, depending on which tech you got, either you had an advantage or you were at a disadvantage because you could have them just like pop into your system and you would have almost no warning. Yeah. There's just yeah. no counterplay for that degree of mobility. Yeah. And yeah, some of them had like ridiculously long range. Like you could go pretty much anywhere 
like the warp drive in the original version of Solaris, like you could basically move anywhere in the galaxy within a certain range. There were like no restrictions at all. Yep. And it was objectively the best thing as a result. Yeah, I certainly liked it the best. The other ones, basically, I felt like they just added restrictions, which uh, just made it harder to use them without them necessarily being particularly more powerful. I'm always interested to see comments like X is more like Civ than Civ or whatever. Because like, people have different things in their head as to what Civ is supposed to be, I think. Yeah, well, that's certainly true, even within this panel. Yeah. A lot of my preferences, for sure. And then there's the history of how what has actually been done in Civilization games, which is not preference. That's just what happened in the past. Uh, but some people even disagree on that or uh, forget some of the earlier choices of the series. Well, we just don't know. Yeah, that's true. We are living in the uh, uh, post-truth era where people can disagree on what happened in the past. Well, I wouldn't call that post-truth. I would call that historical. Yeah. I mean, we do have some people in, in this day and age trying to argue that against using empirical evidence and having multiple truths or multiple people, and that's not a respectable position whatsoever. Now, if there's like a historical event that happened and we aren't sure of the circumstances around it, there can be reasonable disagreement on the on what led to that event or how important one thing was for that event happening versus another or whatever. Well, right, because uh, it's so- not something we can. We can measure objectively down to minutia. Yeah, but uh, when it comes to what mechanics were and were not in a previous iteration of a video game, that's uh, <laughs> there's yeah. not r- much room for debate. <laughs> yeah, not really. Unless the mechanic was hidden, didn't act. Well, there's certainly lots of opportunity for people not knowing or not remembering that mechanics were in games, especially considering how games have become more living uh, products that change dramatically over <laughs> time uh like for example stellaris used to have multiple ftl methods and now it only has the one like there used to be a dlc for eu4 that got turned into the women of something dlc nobody remembers what that dlc was so like people paid for a dlc and then like it stopped existing and was turned into a different paid dlc i think they were planning on a dlc then baked it into the women in history yeah DLC. It was the Women in History DLC was a DLC that was renamed that after a previous DLC was already released. It was weird because I never downloaded the Women in History DLC. I just eventually, I just suddenly had it. And I that, know yeah, that, well, no, that one was made free intentionally. But, but there, there isn't a lot in it other than flavor. Like there's no mechanical uh, alterations. But there was from an it. existing DLC that re- that it replaced. Uh, not to my knowledge. As far as I know, that's what happened, but it's been a long time. I, I don't think it replaced any paid DLC. Uh, it might have uh, replaced something that was put on the chopping block before release, but I don't think it replaced it anything that was put in like the game. One of the random unit pack things that released with the Deluxe Edition. Oh, that could be, yeah. <laughs> I, I never, paid attention to I never downloaded stuff. the Women in History DLC. I just had it. Yeah, but it was free, so it doesn't surprise me that it would just be enabled for everybody by default. But I don't have the Yuletide DLC, and that's also free. Huh. Yeah, I don't know then. The DLC has... You have to actively go and get the DLC for it to be, thankfully. Unless they just push it into a patch. 
Because technically, patches are downloadable content. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> if, we're, if we want to be technical about this, you do download them, and they change the game, sometimes significantly, sometimes even altering the mechanics outright. And do there's we, no choice. <laughs> do we need to alter the cha- the uh, naming convention so that it's a PDLC? I kind of like that, the sound of PDLC, lol. <laughs> Police department, loadable content. Yeah, we're going to be put on some list as a result of our actions in these games and get a visit from the police department. I launched one too many nuke. Or maybe I just played Rim World too long. That would probably get their attention more. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're playing that Hitler mod a little more often than we'd like for you to be. We heard you when you said fascism is the most objective form of government. <laughs> it is object- what I said is that it is objectively the best form of government. And then with a small delay in Hearts of Iron. <laughs> and it's true in Hearts of Iron. It is so ridiculous, the degree to which it is a better option than your alternatives. Well, I I would assume that in any game that is exclusively about fighting a war, a government type that is just state-enforced military-industrial complex is going to have many advantages. Well, it should have some, but it should also have plenty of disadvantages, because historically it had many disadvantages. And you could balance the game around having those trade-offs, but instead, no, fascism is strictly better than communism, democracy, and non-aligned in Hush of Iron. It's strictly better. <laughs> like the, the, the things you get for communists are minuscule, and democracy is nothing but penalties in practice. Come on now. I downloaded a game uh, a few months ago and tried playing a little bit of it, but I just could not figure out what the hell I was supposed to be doing. Yeah, I mean, look in the other Paradox title, there's a lot of, a I, lot I, of learning curve. I thought that, like, I could translate some of my Crusader Kings 3 experience, and, like, just all the systems for doing everything are just so... Like, I couldn't figure out how to build units, I couldn't figure out how to deploy them, I couldn't figure out how to declare a war. I was just like, my gosh. I, I thought I thought there'd some be some... Some can't justify war. Democracies cannot justify wars. Unless the target has already generated world tension and is not a democracy. And that is an enormous restriction... And it's also completely inconsistent with the history leading up to the game. Like, how the fuck did UK get all of these colonial holdings if they couldn't declare wars? Come on now. What the fuck? (laughs) Same for France or Netherlands. All these are democracies that totally can't declare war, guys. We forgot how to do it. (laughs) Never mind this enormous amount of territory in Africa with our colors. We don't know how to start wars. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And, like, not aligned, which represents the uh, mostly the pre-ideology stuff, like monarchies or that kind of setup, also cannot justify wars for some reason until a substantial amount of war tension has been generated, which is asinine. You want to tell me that Middle Eastern countries couldn't fight each other <laughs> the last 50 to 100 years, say, otherwise? Well, it's not. Uh, it's not declaring war. It's uh, what did Woodrow Wilson call it? It's the the spreading American values or whatever. Nah. Spreading democracy at gunpoint. The fascists and communists can justify wars right away, which means your first move is nearly every minor in the game is to switch to fascism. Now, why is it so much better? Because its subjects are better. Its puppet states are better. I mean, all same thing, really, and. 
once you are in a war with a major, you can justify additional wars in a tiny fraction of the time. So rather than waiting like a third of a year to declare another war, you wait somewhere between 10 to 30 days. It's such a massive difference in the rate at which you can expand. And one of the downsides, democracies don't like you. But democracies don't like you if you declare war anyway. And amusingly, if you are playing as a fascist nation and go to war with the Axis, you can still get invitations into the Allies, so you can still even fight with the Allies if you want. <sighs> so stupid. whole thing is stupid. And that's by f- not even close to the biggest issue with the game. The biggest issues of the game come down to controlling your units and the, uh, who gets land during and after war. Those are broken mechanics. Peace conferences are broken, but so is uh, war score. And who gets territory when an army marches in. All those things are completely broken. And it's a shame, because Hearts of Iron could be a really fun game if it worked, but it doesn't work. And so like, I only come back to it now and then, because it's so frustrating to play it. Because it doesn't work. Objectively. The core mechanics do not function. Uh, rant over for now, I suppose. I would have been happy if I could have just gotten past the tutorial and known what the heck I was doing. <laughs> well, that's always a problem in Paradox games, too. Yeah, yeah, I would argue that that is also a failing of the UI. You should be able to figure out how to play the game uh, from the information available in the game. Yeah, Crusader Kings 3 is is the first like Paradox-developed game that I was actually able to... Like the, where the tutorial, I feel, actually taught me enough of the game that I could go and start actually playing the game. Yeah, give it a few years and see if that's still true. Yeah, right. 